today, as Ashley said, we're starting a brand new series today called Blessings. In fact, I just want you just to say the word blessing. Blessing. How many of you have heard that word before, uh, blessing? And how many of you, if I asked you to come up here and give a blessing, uh, would feel comfortable doing that, right? Like three of you in the room. In fact, most of you would say, what, what does that mean? And the series that we're doing today is it's mainly a parenting series, but it's not just a parenting series, and here's why. It is a parenting series in that uh, we're addressing parents, and we're going to give you some biblical foundation for parenting your kids, but it isn't just a parenting series, and here's why. Because the same biblical principles that we're going to cover uh, that are helpful for parents are also helpful for those of you who manage uh, people as a part of your employment, for those of you who are teachers or principals or coaches, uh, uh, for those of you who have grandchildren, for those of you who have parents. Uh, and so let me just start all over again today and say uh, we're starting a brand new series today. And it's a parenting series, but it's not a parenting series at all. And, and what, what I want you to hear is if you're a parent, stick with us, you're going to love it. If you're not a parent, stick with us, you're going to love it. It's going to be a great series. And, and, and I want to begin with the definition of a blessing for a, for a minute. And, and you'll see where we're going uh, when, when I give you this definition. And here, here it is, and I want you to write this down. A blessing is using words and actions to draw out a person's identity in Christ. It's using words and actions to draw out a person's identity uh, in Jesus Christ. And, and a blessing is one of the most important ways that you can affect your children. I, I want you to hear me today because when we say the word blessing, some of us have this, this Pentecostal uh, background that, that says we can name and claim it, and, and I can say I want a Bentley, and, and I want to star in the greatest movie next year uh, in, in the world, and, and that it will happen, right? Some of you think that way. Others of you think it's just something you say to somebody when they sneeze, and others of you have some Celtic something in your mind when you think of blessing. But a blessing is using your words and your actions to pull out a person's identity in Christ. And I've got to tell you, I've got some Jewish friends, and this is a part of their culture. It has been a part of their culture for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I go to different cities in the world, predominantly big cities. And when I go into a big city, there's a Jewish population there. I'm puzzled. By, by the attitude uh, of the Jewish people in that when they go to New York, they want to own the stock exchange. And, and they, don't, they don't just you know, eat at a deli, they own all the delis. And, and when they go to Hollywood, they, they're not just going to star in movies, they're going to own all the studios. And, and I've just got to tell you that I've had some conversations with Jewish people over the years, and, and one of the reasons I believe, in fact, the only reason that I believe a people who have been so marginalized in the history of the world multiple times, hundreds hundreds of millions of them killed. And, and, and when you think through uh, this people group, what has made the difference that when they walk into a place, they think, I should own it? And, and I think that is the blessing. I think it is the blessing that has been spoken over them every Sabbath. I, I, may you be like Leah. May you be like Rachel. May you be like Jacob. May you be in this blessing that has uh, become a part of their culture. It's one of the most important ways, biblical ways, that you and I can affect our children, yet we know nothing about it, actually, in, in our culture. And, and all children, I want you to know today, all children want a blessing. 
And, and today we're, we're going to look at this illustration uh, in Scripture, but I want you to envision that what we're learning to do over the next five weeks is to pull back that bow and, and not only shoot it at the heart of God, but that we are pulling back that bow and we're shooting it through the heart of our children, pinning their heart to the very heart of God. That's what you do with a blessing, focusing your children in on and, and around the person uh, of Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in and through their lives. And all of us crave the prospect of someone who will love us unconditionally, someone who has a deep confidence in us and recognizes the very stamp of God on our lives. All of us want it. Every single one of us want that. And in the Bible, the very first book in the Bible, in Genesis, it tells the story of the, the great family uh, of God, and it begins, you know, with Abraham, and, and who the Bible calls the father of many nations. Yet, when you study that, he only had one son with his wife, Sarah, and his name was what? Isaac. Isaac. Have you, have you heard of the Bible? And Isaac, right? Isaac had two sons, and their names were Jacob and Esau. It's interesting that we say Jacob and Esau because it's really Esau and Jacob, right? And they were very different from one another, very, very different from one another. One of them was a metrosexual, and one of them was a cowboy, right? And, and, and Jacob was the youngest, and like the younger brother, he was the pest, right? And he wasn't just a pest, he was a thief, that he stole Esau's blessing. And when Esau found out about it, listen to this. It's kind of the foundation for this series, Genesis 27, verse 34. When Esau heard his father's words, we'll go back and look at it in a moment. He let out a bitter cry, a loud and a bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he cried. Bless me too, he begged. Bless me too, he, he yelled, because more than anything else in life, he wanted the blessing. Listen, he was set to inherit his father's flocks and, and wealth and, and, and uh, household, but he would trade all of that in a moment for the blessing. That's how powerful this biblical principle is. And if you're the parent uh, of multiple children, you, you can relate to that story maybe from a whole other angle. You relate to that story from the angle of referee, right? That, that, that you get in between your siblings and, and you play referee and your kids are fighting or arguing and, and they're, they're, they're trying to sort it out who's wrong and who started it and what happened. And, and it can be so time consuming, right? And, and so I, my encouragement to you is just stop it. I did. I just stopped it. I, I just say, go sit down and figure it out. I don't care. It's <laughs> biblical parenting right there. <laughs> that you all are allowed to get off the stairs when you finish this discussion. And, and, and y'all go sit down. I, and I just tell myself every time I do it, it's not abdicating my responsibility. It is teaching them to negotiate life. And, and parenting, by the way, by and large, is a very, very thankless job. It's a really, really hard job. In fact, I've found it's the hardest thing uh, that I do. And, and we all try and we all want our children to leave the house one day as great people, as great people, right? Th th this last week, I I'm driving down the road with Eli. Maybe it was two weeks ago, driving down the road with Eli. And, and uh, his mom, every morning, is just saying, did you get your lunch? Did you get your shoes? Did you get your basketball stuff? Did you get your shoes? And I'm like, quit asking him that every dadgum day. And, and, and I'm just making sure he has it. We're driving down the road. And, and, I said, and he said, I, I, got my, I forgot my lunch. He called his mom and said, do I have a lunch? I said, what do you mean you have a lunch? You're 14 years old. You can make your own lunch. 
And we're driving on the road, and I'm saying, Dad, son, I'm not turning around to go get the lunch. And, and he said, why? I said, because I need you to be a productive husband and, and father and contributor in our country one day. And if I turn around and go get your lunch, you'll be on welfare the rest of your life. <laughs> you have got to learn now to be a successful person. And he said, who's that for? I said, it's for you, son, but I just got, I'm not lying to you. It's for me because you're leaving this house one day. And I need you to be successful. I cannot support you as a grown man. You've got to learn to support yourself. And we all try to get our kids to leave the house one day as great people, right? We pray about that. We want that. But sometimes doesn't it feel that we end up spending the majority of our time trying to get them out the door for school? And, and we feel like, what, what have I done? I scream more about put your shoes on than, than I ever thought I would in my whole life. I just can't figure it out. Limley is the slowest human being on the planet. It takes 16 minutes to tie her shoes because she's going to do 48 things in between each little deal. She, she's going to talk to you. She's going to tell you stories. And they're great stories. I want to hear the stories, but there's something in me that's just pulling my hair out saying, just finish tying the shoes. And then I will hear the story. We have to go. And parenting is hard, isn't it? It's hard because it reflects back on us whether we mean for it to or not. Because we want, our, we want the best for our kids, right? But we also, if we're honest, we want the best from our kids. And maybe that's where the problem starts, right? And, and the focus uh, shifts from making them great people and making them followers of Jesus to making them examples of how great we are at parenting. And that is a futile project. Think, think about it for a second. What do we say to our children at times when, when they act up? We say, stop embarrassing me. Or how could you do that to us? Or, or whose kid are you? Or we don't act that way in this family, right? And, and what we hope secretly, because none of us have ever verbalized this. I'm about to verbalize it for the whole American culture. We, we've never verbalized this. What we hope is that our parents, right, and, and more importantly than that, our in-laws will see our kids' behavior and say, you are awesome. You have turned out to be such a great parent. You're better than we ever were at this thing called parenting, right? And, and we take our kids shopping, and we hope they don't act up. And we hope that they don't misbehave because we want the cashier, who we don't know and makes minimum wage, to think that, that we are good parents, right? That somehow that is a, a, a goal for us, for that cashier at Andy's Frozen Yogurt to think that we are good parents. We, we get nervous at parent-teacher conferences uh, because we think they will think less of us as a parent, right? That we're afraid that they will think less of us as a parent. And I, I feel that. Every time I walk into the school, I just got to tell you, I feel it. I feel like I'm going to the principal's office every time I walk into the school, right? And, and I've earned a doctorate degree. I could be the principal at any of these schools. And I walk in and I feel like I, I'm going to the principal's office to be disciplined. And we need to shift our focus, listen, off of ourselves as parents onto our kids. As them being human beings who are actually image bearers of their heavenly father. Now let's take a look at this very familiar text uh, in the scripture and in the Bible. And, and as we look at this text in Proverbs chapter 22, I want you to uh, star this verse, dog ear the page in your Bible, highlight it on your phone or your tablet. 
In Proverbs 22, verse six, here's what it says. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I want you to underline that phrase, in the way he should go. In the way he should go. And when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And you may read that, and you think, like I think, that I've got to somehow program my children to act a certain way. But, but we should understand our children as disciples of Christ, not as robots, because we are not to program them to respond to commands. Our job is to train them up to respond to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And that phrase that I had you underline in the way they should go, it's actually a military term. And it has to do with archery and bows and arrows and, and that every stick that you might in, in that day make a bow from off of a, a tree. Interesting tidbit, by the way. You know how Broken Arrow got the name Broken Arrow? Uh, the, the, I thought, the first time I ever came here, I thought there was some major peace treaty uh, that was signed here and, and that some arrow was broken, you know, as a sign of a peace treaty with, you know, Sacagawea or somebody. Something happened. And, and, and they broke an arrow and they decided we were going to have peace with one another. And, and there was a song that was, when we were growing up, uh, who's going to bring you? You remember what I'm talking about? A broken arrow? Who's going to bring you a bottle of rain? Who is that? Who, who sang that? Rod Stewart sang that song. And, and, and uh, I knew Brett would know that. He, he knows every song. It's human jukebox over there. And, and, and so, but the reason that Broken Arrow got his name Broken Arrow is because the Indians had trees here that you could go break a limb off of the tree and it was instantly an arrow. That whatever species of tree it was had, a, had limbs that were straight enough and fine enough that you could just break it off the tree and instantly turn it into uh, an arrow, which is entirely different than some peace treaty, right? But, but the, in the the way that it was bent uh, means that you made a bow according to the bent of the branch, that every branch was a different bent, and that you had to bend it in such a way according to the way that that branch had grown on that tree. And, and it has everything in the world to do with how it is made. And the same thing is true with our children, right? When we get ready to shoot our children into the heart of God, all of us have seen parents that, that are so flimsy right? That, hey, we'll have a party at our house. We'll buy the alcohol. We'll do whatever. We're, we're trying to be the cool parents, right? Which you're not. That's a loser parent who, who does that. You, that is wrong. You, you, you have got to wake up as the parent. And you, they just flimsy, right? And so when you pull it back, there's no uh, projection. It's going to go nowhere. The, these children will be shot nowhere. It, the arrow's just going to fall. But you also know parents, and maybe you are one, where the, it is so rigid that when you pull it, that there is no pull. And you cannot pull it back in order to shoot them uh, into the heart of God and into the target that we're trying to get them to. And, and the arrow's trajectory, by the way, has to do with how the arrow was made. It's the same with all of our children. They are uniquely made in the way that they are bent by God. And what that verse of Scripture is saying is that we need to raise them up according to the bent and our children are all different. They are uniquely bent by God in the womb. And so this one-size-fits-all parenting style, it will not work. It won't work. How many of you have multiple children have, have multiple times thought, they come from the same DNA? 
How is that even possible? It's why I can't stand up here and give you a 10-step process for biblical parenting because it would only work for about one out of 10 sets of parents in the room. Instead, what we need to come up with is a strategy that is adaptable to each of the children that God gives us. And so I, I want to give a quick shout out to that class uh, that, that we're doing soon called uh, that Barbara Sorrells, who is one of the smartest people I've ever met, uh, who is a part of our church teaching this class, Parenting with the Brain in Mind. The moment she told me the title of the class, I thought, what if your children don't have a brain? And, and uh, which is wrong. I, I should never have thought that, right? But all of your children have brains, and so this could be a class. It starts October the 7th on Sunday night, goes for six weeks at 5.30 at the Battle Creek campus. So all Tulsa campuses, you're invited to attend uh, that group. But when we read that verse of Scripture, train up a child in the way he should go, the focus is usually on the word should. That we think our kids should act this way. Our kids should uh, not act that way. They should avoid this. They should do this. But, but that is really, at its essence and core, just behavior modification. And behavior modification is really nothing more than sin management. And sin management is this attempt to get our kids to avoid this thing called sin. And we're so concerned in teaching them to run from something that if we're not careful, we will forget to teach them to run to someone, the person of Christ. That we're so concerned about keeping them from enjoying the things that are bad, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that we've neglected to teach them to enjoy what is good. God the Father, full of grace, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, right? And, and that that is our job as the, as the parents of children that are a gift from God. And so your goal and my goal cannot be to control our children's behavior. It, it is to provide an environment where they can enjoy the very presence of God. And it is to pass on to them a vibrant and a transforming faith so that your children and my children would know and hear God's voice, that they would know and hear the very voice of God so that my kids would desire to obey God when they hear his voice. Listen, I can't go everywhere my children go. I can't go uh, to college or wherever they end up after school. I can't go with them every day of their life, but I know the one who loves them more than I love them, and I know the one who will speak to them and go with them, and if they can learn to hear his voice, accept his voice as the authority and, and the love in their lives, they're lives will be safe. Listen, so my kids would obey God, and they would hear the Holy Spirit, and they wouldn't just obey God in their flesh. They would obey God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and so we need to teach our kids a sensitivity to God's voice. We need to put uh, it in their toolkit that they would know and understand and hear the very voice of God. We, we put scripture memory in their toolkit, right? And, and we, we put evangelism in their toolkit. And we put service in their toolkit. We even put worship in their toolkit, but the one thing that supersedes all of that is the ability to know and hear the voice of God. I think it's the fundamental thing that ought to be a part of all children's curriculum in every church in the world is to know and hear the voice of God. That's what a blessing does, by the way. 
It creates an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit. When we bless our children, we put them in an environment where they can experience the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and fall in love with Jesus Christ. And that is a big deal. That's what God wants to do in their lives. And so over the next five weeks, including today, we're going to break down the blessing. And we're going to focus on these five aspects or elements uh, to a biblical blessing. And I'll just give them to you now uh, so, so that you can think ahead of wh- where we're going. Number one is meaningful touch. A- and that's our contact and our presence. N- number two is the spoken word. Spoken words, a-, a message about their identity is what I'm talking about when I say spoken words. Number three is incredible value that you would learn to attach a high, high value to your child's identity. Number four, is that where I'm at? Number four, number four is a special future. A special future, giving them a spiritual vision for the future that God has for them. And then lastly, number five is an active commitment. Uh, That's a plan to move them forward in this blessing of God. So that's where we're going to be the next four weeks after today, those five elements. And as you combine those elements, you will create that environment. And again, it is not about completing some sort of exercise with your children that you check off. It is about cultivating an environment where they can hear the voice of God. So, so today we're going to begin with meaningful touch, okay? And, and so I've been telling Meredith for weeks we've got to practice this one. Meaningful, meaningful touch. In, in the Old Testament, that was funny. <laughs> you should have laughed at that. And uh, I can't preach and respond. I can't do it all, right? You, you, I, you have to respond a little bit on your own. So today uh, we're, we're going to start with meaningful touch. And in the Old Testament, listen, physical contact and physical touch were very, very, very important. And and we're going to be focusing on on one of these things each of the five weeks and one part of the story each of these five weeks. So take the story uh, of Isaac blessing his son Jacob in Genesis chapter 27. And I I want you to take a look at at how this blessing uh, begins in, in verse 26. It says, then Isaac said to Jacob, please come a little closer and kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him, and he blessed his son. Here's what I want you to see. Before a word was even spoken, before any instruction was given, uh, before Isaac gets into affirming incredible value and envisioning a special future, he wants to have some meaningful contact with his son. If you've ever been with me to the Middle East, you, you see this big time. I mean, it is all over the Middle East. You see it everywhere. And it was that way in the Old Testament, quite honestly. It was that way in the New Testament. And it's still that way in that part of the world today. If you travel over there, you just have to be aware, especially men. You have to be aware because they will invade your personal space. They will invade it, right? They will put their arm around you. They will hold your hand. They will even kiss you, right, when they greet you. And that's before they get to know you, right? They haven't taken you on one day. And the Western culture and the U.S. culture is very different from that, right? Because our species says, don't touch me, dude. But, but Middle Eastern people will greet one another in a way that two cowboys or rednecks would not. It, 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 but they're not trying to make a statement about their sexuality. They're not trying to sta- make a statement about anything related to that. They're holding hands walking down the street saying, that's my best friend. And it's different uh, th- than this part of the world where you and I live. In fact, I looked up on Wikipedia, which we know is a reliable source. But, but Wikipedia says that clapping 
it's got its origination in that the way that you would tell somebody you were proud of them, the way that you would tell somebody thank you is that you would put your hand on them. And yet when it was impossible for you to walk up there and put your hand on them, that you began to clap with one another because it represents physical touch. One hand represents me and one hand represents you. And I am clapping to say, good job. I am proud of you. Look, look, look at how Jesus blesses people with touch in the Bible. In Mark chapter 10, he touches and he blesses children, right? In Matthew chapter 9, he touches the eyes of two blind men and they can see. They are healed. In Luke chapter 7, he touches the open coffin of a widow's son and he sits up and starts talking. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus touches the leper and the leprosy is removed. Jesus used physical touch and contact all the time to prove a point to the world that was around him. He loved the unlovable and more than that and bigger than that, he touched the untouchable. That lepers were required to sit at the city gate and to cry out when people got near to them, unclean, I am unclean, I'm unclean, stay away, don't touch me, you will be defiled. And in Jesus, in hearing those words and seeing their sores, he ignored both and he got down onto their level and he got his hands dirty and he touched people. I want to look at one of those stories today. I love this story in the Bible, by the way, because it's in the stories that we see and we understand the power of touch and what it means uh, to touch and be touched by Jesus and, and how we can use this to touch others that we want to bless and we want to bless them. Turn over to Mark chapter 5. And in this story, uh, Jesus is getting out of a boat, and, and this man uh, Jairus, the synagogue leader, comes running up. And a synagogue leader is a lot like a campus pastor today. And and he comes running up to Jesus, and he falls down on his knees, and he begs Jesus. Look at verse 23. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. This synagogue leader understood the power of touch, and it is foreshadowing something that is getting ready to happen. But Jarius understands this point that, that we're driving home today. Touch is powerful. I'm studying the idea of blessing, and I'm going to refer to several books throughout this series. In fact, you can write them down, and we'll get them next week, and we'll have them available at the campuses if you want them. Uh, you want them. One of them is Gary Smalley's book, uh, The Blessing, which is uh, the trampoline that this whole series bounced right out of, is, the, is that book, The Blessing. And then the second one is by a, a gal named Michelle Anthony called Spiritual Parenting. And uh, I'll just say this. There's amazing content. The presentation is tough. I mean, unless you're an academic. It's a tough presentation, but the content is fantastic. 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 This book I've shown you many times. And uh, The Daily Spirit Blessings. And uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these have been distributed through our congregations uh, over the years. And if you don't know this one, I I want you to get this one. It it is one of the greatest tools that has come into my life in the last five to six, seven years. And I've worn out multiple, multiple copies. I have copies in every bathroom, in my church, in my home, everywhere I go, because I I just love this resource. And so in studying this idea, I've come across some really neat stuff and some some amazing uh, research. Do you know that, that uh, doctors tell you that a baby, an infant that is not touched for two weeks will die? It will die. 
if it's not touched for two weeks, that, that it can go longer without food than it can without touch. In fact, doctors will tell you today the benefit, uh, uh, the healing benefit of touch, that, that it can decrease blood pressure, it can decrease heart disease, it can decrease stress, it can actually, meaningful touch, add at least two years to your life. Here's something from Dr. Uh, Ross Campbell who says this. Uh, he studies prostitution and sex workers. And his interest is finding out the root cause of that. Why, why do those people do that? And here's what he says. Listen to this quote. In all of my reading and in all of my experience, I have never known one sexually disoriented person who had a warm, loving, affectionate father. That's what he says. Not one. In all of his decades of research, said, what can you do with your touch? How much power can your touch bring to your children, bring to your family? That, that you, what can you turn from a deficit to a blessing with simply meaningful touch? Let, let's keep reading in the story in verse 24. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. In other words, people wanted to see this. They craved the very presence of Jesus, and they're anticipating something great about to happen. But, but now on their way, or on his way, to heal uh, the synagogue leader's daughter, something amazing happens. Now pay attention as we look at this story and we watch it play out. Verse 25, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years. There's significance to 12 in this story, and I don't have time to teach you that today, but the, there is a significance to the number 12 because it's in both of the stories, with constant bleeding, constant bleeding. It's exactly what you think it is. It's exactly what you think it is. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. Which, which begs the question, what on earth did these doctors do, right? They prescribed all kinds of remedies, and doctors in that day are different than doctors in our day-to-day. -day. They were not highly respected people in, in that day. In fact, the Talmud says the best among doctors is worthy of Gehenna. So, so that tells you where doctors were in, in the uh, whole scheme of society. So if you went to a doctor, you were very desperate. And they would make you do crazy things like drink wine mixed with rubber and dirt or, or, or carry around an ostrich egg for a week to see if that would help. And, and so the Bible says, and over in, uh, the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She was desperate, but, but she had heard of someone. Uh, she had thought of someone. She had been told of someone who could heal her, and now he is showing up in her hometown. Look, look at what it says. Verse 27, she had heard about Jesus. She had heard she was one of those that had heard about him, maybe had seen him before, but now she's about to take the next step. I'm going to touch him. And so she came up behind him through the crowd so, so that he wouldn't see her. She was sneaking through the crowd. Why? Because she was afraid. Why, why was she afraid? Remember, it was an issue of constant blood and a constant flow. And according to Leviticus, that made you unclean. And everything you touched was unclean. And she was about to take this calculated risk here, but, but she's scared. 
And, and the Bible says, and she touched his robe. And she wasn't going to let anyone or anything get in the way, not even the crowds who could and would possibly turn on her. Verse 28, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And, and here she is in this story. She's creeping closer and closer and closer with her head down because she doesn't want anybody to see her. And, and, and she reaches out with that trembling hand and with just fear in that hand, afraid. She touches his robe. She didn't grab him. She didn't pull on his robe. She didn't yank on it. She just touched it. She understood the power of a simple touch. But verse 29, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Now let me give you just a couple of points on the subject today and from this passage today. Number one is this. Those of us who understand the power of touch will seek the presence of Jesus. Those of us who understand the power of touch will seek the presence of Jesus. When you grasp the power of meaningful touch in your life and in the lives of your children or your parents or your employees or your pupils or your athletes, once you get that, it is so, so powerful that you will seek it out. This woman understood the power of touch and the power of presence. How many people in that crowd, think through this for a moment, how many people in that crowd needed a touch from God? But yet they weren't bold enough to reach out and touch Jesus. In this story that we're reading today, the only people who were healed were those who were touched. This woman touched Jesus and boom, she was healed. Jerry's daughter, the moment that Jesus touched the daughter, boom, she's healed. In this story, it plays out over and over again. And the only ones that are healed are the ones who were touched. Look at verse 30. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. Look at all these people. How would you ask who touched me? Listen, Jesus was aware in the midst of a huge crowd of people that he was offering the present presence of his presence. And he was giving that to the people. In verse 32, look what it says. But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what happened to her, came and fell on her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. Now think about this for a second. She had a plan, and her plan was to touch his robe. And, and I'll sneak up, I'll touch his robe, I'll sneak out, and no one will ever know. And now Jesus is making this big show of it. Who touched me? And, and who's right next to him is the synagogue leader. Jairus, right? And, and Jairus is standing there, and, and who touched me? You? you did, did you touch me? Right? You, you, you touched me? Why, why did you touch me when she confesses? And listen, she had to be afraid that she would have to tell her whole intimate, private story. But look what Jesus says to her in verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well Go in peace, your suffering is over. 
I wish I had time to teach each of those phrases today. Think through that for a second. Your faith has made you well. In other words, trusting me with everything in your life. I want you to go in peace. That's shalom. That, that's wholeness. That is your body is well. Your soul is calmed. Your spirit is good. Shalom, peace, right? Your suffering is over. Finally, she had to think. And then Jesus, what he offered her was complete salvation, 100%. And he did it even though uh, this woman posed a great danger to him and to the crowd. And here's the second point that I want you to get out of this passage. Write this one down. Number two, those who understand the power of touch will present their own presence. They will present their own presence. Go go down to Mark chapter 5 and and, uh, verse 40. And look what it says. The crowd laughed at him. But th- th- he's on his way, by the way, to Jairus' house. Uh, Jairus' house. I don't know why I keep saying Jairus. Jairus' house. To Jairus' house. A- a- and there are mourners outside saying, it's too late, she's dead, uh, go home. And Jesus says, no, not yet. I haven't touched her yet. And they laughed at him. Look, look at verse 40. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying, holding her hand, star that, circle that, underline it, holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old, there's the number 12 again, and the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and they were totally amazed. Now go back to the first first part of the story where we began the story. I summarized it for you. Jesus was crossing a lake right? The Sea of Galilee. He he is coming across, and on the other side of the lake, you have to look at the context in the Scripture, he encountered demons. Jesus was over there encountering demons. And, And where did he encounter those demons? He encountered those demons in a graveyard. Do you know what happens when you're a Jew and you go to a graveyard? You are now ceremonially unclean again. And now this woman with the issue of blood, who is ceremonially unclean, touches him. And then he takes the hand of a dead girl and touches a dead body. Unclean, 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 unclean. And Jesus, it, it, all of this stuff it has made him ceremonial un, ceremonially unclean. And his attitude about it apparently is he doesn't care. Why? Because he understood the power of touch. Jesus was willing to go places that others wouldn't. And Jesus was willing to meet with people that others feared And more intimate than that, Jesus touched people who others thought were untouchable because he knew there was power in touch, and he knew there was power in his presence. He knew that. And it goes all the way back to the creation story, right? It it tells us in the story of Genesis that that God was uh, forming the world and speaking everything to existence, and he said to the things in the water, come forth. And he said to the things that would fly in the air, come forth. And he said to the animals that would walk on the land, come forth. He spoke it, and they all came forth. But when he wanted to make man, the one he would be intimate with, he did not speak a word and say, come forth. No, he bent down and he took mud and dust and he formed it in his hands. And he said, this one, I will be intimate with in another way. I will not just speak to it. I will touch it. I will form it with my hands. And this one will need my touch forever. It will be depended upon touch from this point forward. Two weeks without it, that baby will die. Why? Because God formed us. 
And then he breathed his breath into us, and he said, with this one, I will be that intimate. And we possibly, could it be, that we have allowed the issue and the concept of comfort and personal space to become an excuse for developing a set of impersonal relationships. We're put out by someone who gets too close. We're put out by it. This week, three different statements made from three different people. One of them was a young lady in our church who's 20s, 30s, I don't know, 20s. And she had lunch with Meredith, and she told Meredith, I call you and Alex my butt people, which I'm not fascinated with at all. (laughs) And Meredith said, what what do you mean? And she said, "I, I just think of the path of where I would be but for the two of you. And if Meredith hadn't been praying for me, da-da-da-da-da, and if Alex hadn't rode with my dad halfway across the state in the middle of the night and said to me, get your butt in the car, where I would be. Another lady who's a pastor's wife today, first time she came to meet with me in my office, she, she had issues. I, I think she had demonic issues. In fact, I walked out of my office and told Lanita, I will never meet with that woman alone ever again. In fact, if you can meet with her first, you meet with her and I'll never see her again. And and, uh, Lanita said, you're her pastor. I said, I know. And and today, God has healed her. God has set her free. God has moved in her life. And, and, And you just think through those moments, the power of staying with it, the power of touch, the power of what God will do in a normal day when you're just faithful to him, there is power in it. And we are put off by the idea of touching and sharing close personal space. So we end up shutting people out of our lives and we may be missing the very blessing that God has for us. And it may not be intentional, I don't think it is, but it happens. And when we do it with family members or those that we could bless, we end up withholding the blessing instead of extending the blessing that God wants us to extend. And maybe we got this wrong. Maybe we should be a little more touchy-feely in our culture because of the way that we were made. What is meaningful contact? It's more than just touch, by the way. And there's an incredible application of your presence presence, just simply being present with with your family, with your kids, with your parents. It's so important to practice the idea of presence. It it is so meaningful. Be present. Something I tell my kids all the time, present me with the present of your present presence. Like, Dad, present me now with the present. I'll receive it as a gift of your present presence. In other words, put the phone down. Look me in the eyes and acknowledge me. Get out of your own world for two minutes and let's address one another. Show me that you value my presence. Listen, here's the key. I cannot expect my kids to be present if I don't first model my presence with them. And and trust me, I got a whole lot more to be distracted by than they do. I, I know they think that I don't understand the sixth grade, the eighth grade, the 10th grade. I, I, I understand all of those grades. I lived them and it wasn't in the dark ages. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the new channel that uh, the owners of Cakes with Jay just put out uh, called Totally Awesome 80s. It's their old channel. It's totally awesome, actually. <laughs> totally awesome 80s. And, and I told Limley, I said, you won't believe 
this channel. It's an awesome channel. And she said, oh, I know already, the oldies. <laughs> and and uh, the oldies. I understand their lives. And I know they think that Meredith and I don't understand their lives, but we understand their lives. And I know they think they're busy. They're not busy. I'm busy. You want to have a contest of busy? Let's have a contest. How many children do you have? How many churches do you pass? On and on and on, the list could go, right? And and so here's the key. I have to model it. Even though I could be far more distracted than they could be, I've got meetings and messages and ministries on my mind all the time. I have millions of levels of distractions in my life, but I have learned and am learning and on a regular basis practicing and trying to practice to put all of that aside to be present with my family. And if I ever hope to have some sort of impact on my children as a father on them, I've got to learn this and so do you. And that woman knew that her presence in the presence of Jesus was required. She knew that she needed his presence. She knew that she needed the power of his presence in her life. But, but there was one thing uh, that she knew also, and additionally, she knew vulnerability. And she knew that if there were a, a, a touch from Jesus to come, she would have to put herself in a vulnerable scenario. She, she may have to explain herself. She may have to go into details about her private matter, but she was willing to get vulnerable to get into the presence of Jesus Christ. And we need that same willingness to risk vulnerability that holds us back. And I think especially in our culture, the reason we don't use meaningful touch is because we know that it requires vulnerability. That when you make contact with something else, someone else, you risk something, right? You remember that when you're dating. You remember that risk and that vulnerability of the first kiss or are we going to hold hands or, or, or whatever. And there was a risk, right? It was the other person going to pull away? Is the other person going to reject me? Meaningful touch, that's just a silly, silly illustration. But meaningful touch requires vulnerability, but vulnerability creates strength. It's the opposite of what we think. We fear vulnerability that it will make us weak, but it doesn't. It actually strengthens us. It strengthens our children. It strengthens our relationships. Let me me explain it to you this way and illustrate it this way. When you go to the doctor, you're vulnerable, right? Thank God they're better today than they were, you know, in in the first century. But if you're sick and your neighbor or your coworker or your friend says to you, hey, man, how are you doing? You're probably going to say, I'm fine. I'm good. No problems. But when you go to the doctor and they ask, how are you doing? At that moment, you don't say, I'm great. How about you? Right? You don't do that. You you look at your doctor and you go, I'm going to be vulnerable in this moment. I'm going to tell them my problem. It may be scary for you to have that pain in your side or that symptom or whatever it is that's going on, but you don't want to open up to anyone else about it, but you're going to open up to the doctor. You're going to be vulnerable with the doctor. Why? Because he can help you. And you know that, that, that he or she can help you. And, and we must first get vulnerable with God. And, and in order to get vulnerable with God, we got to be open and honest with him. That we got to tell our soul to open up and talk to God. That we got to get vulnerable with God and tell him what it is that's on our minds. What, what are our symptoms and what's playing out, what's bugging us, what's happening to us, what's got us down. That we would be vulnerable with God. Why? Because he can help us. And not only can he, he wants to. And that vulnerability does the opposite of what we think. It brings strength. So many people fear vulnerability because we've been hurt in the past. And I know it's being vulnerable, it's scary. It's putting it out there. And this whole idea of blessing, I'm confident it is foreign to you. 
as it is to me. We, we, our culture knows very little of this biblical blessing. And by our culture, I, I'm not, I don't mean the world, I, I mean the evangelical culture. And the reason is sad. It's because most of us have never received a blessing before. The reason we don't know how to do it is because we never received it, because our parents didn't know anything about it. I, I, I think God is calling us to be vulnerable today, church. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Just in a moment of vulnerability, nobody looking at any of our churches today, any of our campuses today. I, I want to ask you the question. How many of you today at every campus, whether you're here at Battle Creek or in the chapel or at Midtown or Downtown or South Tulsa or Wasson, DuPage, or even across the ocean in Egypt today, how many of you would be vulnerable enough for a moment just to say, I never received a blessing. N nobody's ever spoke a blessing uh, over me. Not a parent or a grandparent, certainly not a boss. I I've just not, I I've not received what you're talking about today in the form of a biblical blessing in my life. W would you just raise your hand at every campus? Just raise it high and let me see it. Just every campus, just raise it up high and let me see it. Every single campus. Now, here's what I want you to do. If your hand just went up, just in a moment of vulnerability, we're not going to look. I, I just want you to stand at every campus. Just stand up. If your hand just went up to say, I've never received it, I, I want to change that today. I want to speak a blessing over you. And in just a moment of vulnerability, would you just stand and would you just receive? And, and maybe where you're standing, would you just kind of hold your palms open like you're going to catch something falling out of the sky into your life? And as you pastor, I, I, I just... I want to pray a blessing over you. And I want to pray today that God would bless you greatly. Every campus, would you stand? I want to bless you today with identity and legitimacy. Father, for all that are standing across all of our churches today where the spiritual line of blessing may have been broken or severed, would you return it today to them and all those they love and care about, to their children, their grandchildren, and on and on and on down the line. To each of you, I say to your spirit, your father made you special. You are a very special person created and crafted and designed by God the Father. He planned for you. You are not an accident. Your Father made you beautiful and beloved. God invested an incredible amount of effort and concentration in designing you. You are unique. You are one of a kind. God has thought extensively about you. He smiled on the day that he created you. He designed your spiritual heritage. There is a spiritual treasure chest of generational blessings with your name on it. Today, I bless you in the name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
And Father, for all that are standing today, I pray the blessing of God in, on, and all around their lives, that they would receive it, that they would be uh, carriers of the very glory of God, the manifest glory of God in their lives, that they would receive it, they would feel it, they would know it, and every place their foot touches would be witness to the very glory of God Almighty. Would you receive it? You may be seated. Today, with your heads bowed and your eyes still closed, there are men and women in our church. Today, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. And today could be the greatest day of blessing for you, that you would be blessed by the greatest gift of all time, the person of Jesus, into your life. And I want to lead you in a prayer helping you receive that blessing today, helping you receive the person of Jesus Christ. Right where you're seated, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. You pray it out loud after me. You're going to hear it all around you. You want to trust Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Right where you're seated, just say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Today I ask you to forgive me for all my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to forgive me and to save me. I want to thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say, Amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for blessing?